One year ago this week, 23-year-old Sung Hoi Cho gunned down 32 Virginia Tech University students before taking his own life. The worst mass murder in U.S. history. On that tragic day, Cho's parents sought desperately to reach their son by cell phone, fearful that he may be a victim of the shootings. Officials arrived at their townhome at 10 p.m., delivering the horrifying news that their son was indeed dead. But I can imagine then overwhelmed by the shocking revelation that he had been the gunman. Several days later, Cho's only sister issued the family's only public statement. She wrote simply, We are humbled by this darkness. We are humbled by this darkness. I would imagine that these words do not speak hope. And from reports of how the family has responded, that would seem to be the indication. Yet ironically, these words, these heart-wrenching and grief-stricken words are actually laced with hope. The greatest human tragedy is to leave the sin-cursed world never having been humbled by the darkness of sin. Living out your life thinking that all is well when it's not. It is sadly a tragedy of our culture that our culture constantly fuels this very thought that all is well. And too often it is a thought encouraged by Christian teachers In a recent USA Today article entitled, Has the Notion of Sin Been Lost? Kathy Lynn Grossman recounts an exchange between TV host Larry King and megachurch pastor Joel Olstein of Houston's Lakewood Church. King asked as to why Olstein does not use the word sinner in his sermons and books. Olstein's reply was very telling. He said this, I never thought about that. But I probably don't. Most people already know what they're doing wrong. I'd argue that point. But when I get them to church, he says, I want to tell them that you can change. Now let's think of this just for a moment. Here's a pastor who preaches a message virtually free of the concept of sin and admits that he never thought about that. So he's preaching a people-can-change message that is not consciously rooted in the doctrine of human depravity. That is frightening. Because the Bible teaches through and through that until we are humbled by the utter darkness of our sin, there is utterly no hope for rescue. If we do not come to terms with the darkness of our sin, then the light that we see is within, not without. And we're lost still in our darkness. Spiritual life and spiritual change do not come from discovering the champion within you as Olstein teaches, but by first being humbled by this darkness of sin. 
And while it has become increasingly unpopular for churches to do so, we have been laboring in these last three weeks now to face the darkness of our sins. We have seen that sin is idolatrous rebellion against God's law and authority. We have seen that it touches every soul on the planet to the very depth of our being. We are born with an innate proclivity to idolatrously dishonor God's law. To the core of our natural beings, we are all sinners, but we must move beyond a mere recognition of this theology. And having established these points in the last couple of weeks, I'd like us to bear down in application today more upon this very idea and to realize that we must be entirely humbled by the utter darkness of our sin. There are many ways, perhaps, in which we could do this from Scripture, but there is perhaps no more direct route to that goal than to ask the Holy Spirit to help us to perceive the horror of our sin in light of two statements intended to encapsulate all of God's will for us. In one sense, to epitomize that will and that word. We find the first in a familiar text of Exodus chapter 20, and I invite you there, Exodus 20 and verse 3 where we consider the first commandment of the law of Moses. Exodus chapter 20, as he promised to Abraham four centuries earlier, God has delivered the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. And as he had recently promised Moses, Moses comes back to Mount Sinai with Israel in tow. And now here is the fearful nation trembling at the foot of the mountain, hearing the voice of God and seeing the evidence of His presence there. Now issuing ten words. Chapter 20 and verse 1, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now think in verses 1 and 2, the Ten Commandments that follow are rooted in God's saving grace to Israel. He does not issue ten arbitrary laws calibrated to make Israel miserable. He is her Savior. He has acted miraculously in her best interest. He has kept His promises to His chosen and beloved people. It is this God who issues His law to Israel. It is in the context of relationship then and in keeping with his steadfast, loyal love for his people that God says, you will have no other gods before me. God isn't just having a proud moment here, a self-centered moment. This is the God of love who's delivered these people and says, when we start, we start here, you will have no other gods before me. Now, before me doesn't mean you can worship as many other gods as you'd like, but just make sure that I'm number one on the list. This is not henotheism, as that is called, choosing to worship one God among a plurality of other gods. When he says to have no other God before me, the Hebrew reads literally, no other God before the faces of me. That is, get every God out of my presence. And by the way, everywhere you go, I'm there. I am the omnipresent God. Never put another God before my face. I alone am God. And you must worship me in that way. 
Now let's understand here that there is to be, I think, an expansion of of implication to this statement. We should not imagine that this command is really not useful to us anymore. We don't carve out idols and put them on a shelf out of wood or make them out of some precious metal. and So it really doesn't apply to us anymore. Ralph Waldo Emerson caught this well in uh, verses. He said, we boast our emancipation from many superstitions. But if we have broken any idols, it is through a transfer of idolatry. What does he mean? We've broken many idols. That is, we don't worship before these little images and figurines any longer. But we've only done so to replace them with more glorious idols. Flashier idols, such as houses and cars and technology, cyberspace and friendships and sex and sloth and entertainment and self. We erect all kinds of other idols in our life. An idol is really anything that takes the place of God. And often a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing. Martin Luther, in his longer catechism, has a helpful section here. An idol, he says, is anything from which I seek ultimate good or final refuge. Now, isn't this what Eve did in the garden? She saw that fruit that God had forbidden, and she saw that it was good for food and that it was useful to make one wise. These are things she wanted, and she grasped that fruit and ate it because she thought she could really secure good apart from God's law. God's law laid down these strictures, and if she could get outside of those strictures and go her own way, she could really grasp more good than God was willing to give her. That's idolatry at its heart. We take, for instance, in our own day, the idolatry of money, which tracks down the very same lines. We begin to depend upon it for happiness and security, which God alone can supply. Generally, as little children, we really don't think about money. We don't really think in terms of our families, rich or poor, or if there's any need. We just are supplied and we rest in our parents' care. But somewhere along the line, we realize the power of money and it displaces God and becomes an idol. Because I seek money to grant me goodness, to grant me refuge and security. Or think of sex Another common idol. It's good in and of itself, a gift from God. But when we begin to seek sexual pleasure in self-gratification or romantic pleasure in a person that God has not given to us, we say essentially, I can get more good, I can get more pleasure from doing things my way than from obeying God's will. His ideas really restrict me from ultimate pleasure and goodness. And so I go my own way. I cut my own path, and sex becomes an idol. Pastor Philip Ryken catches this concept in two Puritan writers. He quotes Thomas Watson, who says, To trust in anything more than God is to make it a God. Matthew Henry says, Pride makes a God of self. Covetousness makes a God of money. Sensuality makes a God of the belly. Whatever is esteemed or loved, feared or served, delighted in or depended on more than God, that whatever it is, we do in effect make a God of it. 
And on this expanded definition of idolatry, Luther argues further in the Catechism that the first commandment is really, quote, the chief source and fountainhead which flows into all the rest and again all return to that and depend upon it. In other words, there's this circulation of idolatry that flows through all of the other commandments. And when you break one of the other commandments, it always comes back to idolatry. So crush idolatry in your heart, and you will crush every sin. Commit any sin, and it will evidence a degree of idolatry. And I encourage you along these lines, there's great help and counsel here. Define the sin struggles of your life. The besetting sins where you struggle and there is trial and temptation that is constant. Learn to identify the idol you have erected in your heart that leads you to participate in this way in sin. You will find that you are not worshiping God alone, but that there are other things, other ideas, other people, other pleasures that have elevated themselves above God in your affections. Think that way. Now, when we say that, this is profound. Because, as we've given evidence already here this morning, there are churches that teach you to think differently. To think, rather, of what is inside and to realize the potential that is there. To tap into who you are for the answers and for growth. But what God says is tap into who I am and discern at the very core of your being whether you worship me as the only God or whether there are other gods that reside in your soul. And we stop at this point and say, is this really right? I mean, God leads the Israelites out of Israel, and he does them a great favor here, but isn't this a bit proud to say, I'm the only God you can worship? In the end, isn't it kind of small? I mean, doesn't God realize he is the only God, and eventually everybody will come to figure that out? Isn't this sort of small and controlling of God to say, you will worship me only and you'll worship no one else? Well, I think what we must understand when we just couch it in those terms, we're off base. What we need to understand is the goodness of God. God is the only source of goodness in this universe. Do you believe that? Every good gift comes from Him. There is no other source of goodness. And God is the only source of security for the human soul. There is no other We are restless, as Augustine says, until we find the rest for our soul in God alone. There is no other source of rest and refuge, ultimately. We need to recognize first, then, that God is an infinite source of unending goodness, holiness, pleasure, and strength for His people. Flowing from His being is nothing but infinite and absolute perfection and beauty. There is no other God. There is no other source. Now, what would you think? What would you think of me as a father if I refused to share with my children my food and medical care that I purchased with my income? I'd say, it's my income. Why should I share that with them? They haven't done a thing to earn it. You should probably put me in jail if I had that kind of an attitude. Fathers have an obligation to share food and medical care and a lot of other things with their children, even though they don't earn it. There's things that are right to share. But should I share everything? Should I share my wife with other men? For instance, if I prostituted my wife to other men, that would also be an egregious and vile crime, wouldn't it? 
Now think of this. As absolutely repulsive as it is for a man to prostitute his wife's body, it would be even more wicked for God to willingly share your heart with another God. It would be vileness in God. The love of a faithful husband is displayed in an honorable jealousy for his wife's singular affection. Let's say, I've used the illustration before, but if my daughter went to a neighbor's house and I went to pick her up later and found her sitting on the man's lap in the garage, as he spoke tenderly to her, telling her that although she had one daddy, he could be her daddy too. I think I would probably break his jaw. That honestly, I think that would be the danger. But if I could somehow resist that, I would be sure to tell my daughter, don't you ever talk to that man again. I am your daddy, not him. And would you call me selfish? Would you call me small? I think you would rally around me and say, thank you for showing a father's heart. The love of a father's heart displays honorable jealousy. Now think of this, child of God. When God says, do not turn to anything or anyone else as a source of goodness and refuge, that is his love speaking. He wants what is best for you. He is your Father. He is your only God. You cannot find any goodness or refuge outside of Him. And for Him to say anything else would be to join the idolatry. We must recognize then that the laws that God issues are not arbitrary laws. They are rooted in His nature. God's laws writes Wayne Grudem, are a unified whole and reflect the moral purity and perfection of God himself in the integrated oneness of his person. And it's here then that we come face to face with the darkness and the horror of our sin. And where I think it is worthy of reflecting on this commandment, you shall love no other God before me, because in fact we do. This God who is perfectly good. This God who loves us infinitely. He loves us. He has provided salvation for us. Yet over and again we turn an idolatrous heart and say there's some other path to pleasure. There's some other path to security. There's some other way besides God's way. Is there any question why the Old Testament writers call this spiritual adultery? There are things you're supposed to share, and there are things in life that are wickedness to share. Our Father has conquered death. He has sent His Son in our place to take the penalty of our sin. He has given us through Him a home in heaven and provided every spiritual blessing. Our loving Father, who is the one and only absolute source of goodness and beauty, has never issued a command that is not for our greatest good and joy in relationship with Him. Never. 
Yet over and over again, the horror of this darkness, we turn to other voices. We follow other words, and we glut ourselves on pleasures outside of his purpose. It is who we are. Have you come to face this darkness of idolatry? The first commandment. We look then secondly to the great commandment, which really reflects the first and ties into it and into all the Mosaic law. But I'd like to turn to the words of Jesus in Matthew 22. As he draws from Deuteronomy 6 in the summation of the law, we look at the great commandment in Matthew chapter 22 and are familiar with this passage, but I'd like to apply it in this context. Jesus, you remember, has entered Jerusalem on Tuesday, a Passover week. On Friday, he will be impaled on a Roman cross, and his enemies are laboring to make sure that happens. Now, the previous day, Jesus has cleansed the temple. He's driven people out, and the authorities gather now around him. He's protected by the crowds. But they gather around him here at the temple, and they say, Who on earth do you think you are clearing out our temple? In three parables, Jesus lets the leaders of Israel know who he thinks they are. And he gives several parables that indicate this. They're rebels against God. At chapter 22 and verse 15, Jesus' enemies seek to defeat him with intellectual arguments. The first coming from the Pharisees and the Herodians who give a political question and strive to hang him on that. Then the Sadducees pose a theological question about resurrection in chapter 22, verse 23 and following. Then comes a third challenge in the form of an interpretive question regarding the law of God. Verse 34 of Matthew 22. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Pharisees really didn't care who hung Jesus. They were so upset with him. If even the hated Sadducees could do it. The resurrection-denying Sadducees, they'd go for it. But with the Sadducees failing, the Pharisees huddle, apparently in the courtyard of the temple, and come to Jesus and approach him with a question, sending forth one of their lawyers that is an expert in the law of Moses. If they can make Jesus look foolish, maybe that will turn the crowds against him and they'll be able to get at him. And so the teacher asks, and by the way, Mark indicates that he has... A fair degree of sincerity, actually, in his question. But he says, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? I realize for the rabbis of Israel, they spent all kinds of time analyzing and arguing about the law. They figured out how many there were and which ones were more binding than others and how they worked themselves out. So it's not really all that profound of a question, but a point that was hotly debated, and thus Jesus might polarize the crowd that's around him. What's the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus runs with it. I mean, there's a lot of times they ask Jesus questions and he just doesn't answer them. Or he answers them off in a completely different direction. But here he interacts with the man. And we better listen. This is really a vital question. And Jesus says to him, verse 37, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. So Jesus really agrees that there are divine commands which are weightier than others. He selects Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5, which is part of the great Shema, the central creed of Judaism. 
It says it is the love of God with all of the beings. It says heart, soul, and mind. I don't think these are to be taken as starkly separate ideas, but really somewhat synonymous and overlapping concepts, repetitive, intending to stress the point that we must love God with all of our faculties, with our entire being. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind. This is the first commandment, or the great commandment. Again, I think these terms are synonymous. That is first in importance, not in time. This is the fundamental commandment of God's law, and everything else is essentially subordinate to it. If he would add anything else, it is verse 39. A second that is like to it, links up with it, flows from it, is in parallel with it. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So everything God says in the Old Testament, law and prophets, everything which Jesus came to fulfill, to produce through the Spirit in our hearts, all of it is encompassed by these two commands. Love God and love your neighbor. Love God with all that you are, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. He's not saying the Old Testament is derived logically from these commands, is reducible to these commands strictly. But these commands, as Morrison says, are the underlying ethical aim of all of God's commands. That's helpful, isn't it? It's reduced for us there. We think of all of the laws of God, all of the will of God in the Bible, and it's hard to keep in mind, and it's really pretty largely impossible to carry in a pocket. But we can carry this one simple statement, or these simple ideas, no other idols, in that God is to be loved with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. It's encapsulated there. So if you want to strike at the heart of a perfectly good Father's will, Perfectly loving, heavenly Father. What does He want of His children? It's this, to love Him with our entire being and to love others as we love ourselves. Indeed, that is what is absolutely best for us. This is a command to enter our Eden here. Adam and Eve, remember, no fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This permitted Adam and Eve to not simply be assigned a position of obedience and reverence toward God, but actually to be able, in fact, to cooperate with that call, to make the choice to not violate God's will, to walk in fellowship with Him. There is the test before them in the Garden of Eden. He permits them to choose to love God and to enjoy paradise forever in His presence. And it is really in some respects, I realize the playing field has shifted considerably, but it is really no different with us in one sense. God says, do not bear false witness, do not covet, do not lust, do not love money, do not disobey your parents and the like. And he says positively, love God with all of your heart. All that God is asking of us is to walk in fellowship with him. It's beautiful, it's good, it's right. He's not being hard on us or difficult. You know where the difficulty comes from? It comes from within us. This good and gracious God who says, love me with all of your heart and your neighbor as yourself. We don't do it. 
we bend over and over again away from His law. Willingly choosing not to love Him and not to love others. We fall short of this glory. We do not enjoy this fellowship with Him. And there is a desperate danger at this place. And that is the danger that this is the way that we really want it. That we really don't care what God wants. In fact, every one of us is born in that state of alienation from God. We believe there's other ways to get pleasure, to get refuge, to get security, to get what we want. Other ways apart from what God has said in His Word. We do it all the time. And we might pretend that there's no consequences to any of this. That we can just go on and live our merry life and never really be humbled by the darkness of it all. We do not have time to develop it here, but this is not what the Bible teaches, is it? That we can just go on our merry way. It teaches that when we violate God's law, when we don't love Him with all of our heart, and when we don't love others as we love ourselves, we incur guilt. We stand condemned before a holy God. We are out of sync with His nature. The nature that runs this universe and holds it together. We're in a state of guilt. We incur divine wrath. The anger of God is over us and rests upon our heads even at birth because we choose this way. We are bent against loving God with all of our heart. And that leads to suffering in this life and ultimately to death. For the wages of sin is death and after that the judgment. It is absolute insanity to think that we cannot love God with all of our heart and we can choose not to love our neighbor as ourselves, and somehow just skip into God's presence and be just fine. God's Word teaches nothing of this. It doesn't teach us to look within and find the answers. It teaches us to look up and to realize the anger of a judging God against us. A God who loves us, but a God who is just. And so I ask the question in light of these meditations today. Have you been humbled by the darkness of your sin? I mean genuinely humbled humbled have you come to realize that down to the very core of your being i am bent against everything that god demands of me out of his love and goodness to me do you find it painful to realize that you don't love him as you should that there are idols that compete do you despise the idolatry that erects those idols in the place of god If you've come to face this darkness and to be humbled by it, it is here that hope enters. Humbled people can look up and see the glory of God. Those that are mesmerized by what they see in the mirror cannot see outside of themselves for their own solution. They may appeal to a religion. They may appeal to some teacher. They may appeal to some work outside even of helping other people. But in it all, they're really reaching within to find out what they can do to please God. Churches that gather only to hear how wonderful they are are never going to sing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound that Saved a Wretch Like Me. And if they sing it with their words, it's not going to do anything in their heart. They don't get it. 
I'm so thankful I can sing that song and it has meaning. It resonates with my soul, not in a depressive way, not in a self-analytical way that is unhealthy and harmful, but we sing amazing grace because we've come to face the darkness of our sin. We've been humbled by it. And when we are humbled by the darkness of sin, then we understand these words from Romans 5. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for sinners. More by his grace on that at a later date. But when we come to see God as the source of all goodness, and we come to embrace him as our Savior, then we cease to make idols of his gifts. We start an agenda against making idols of his gifts. And we begin to enjoy the gifts that he gives with a heart that loves God above all others. And that loves our neighbor as we love ourselves. It is then that he brings light to us in rescue from our position of human darkness and depravity. I trust by the grace of God that you have been humbled by the darkness of your sin. If you can't see it in the light of his commands that we've considered today, you are desperately lost and need to look up and see reality. If you've seen this and understood it, don't run from it. The answer is not in the progress of the Christian life to recognize I'm a sinner. From that point, leave that, never think about it again. It's a dirty, bad story from the past, and now all we do is move forward. We don't grovel in our sin We don't look at victory over sin as our salvation, but never do we need to forget our sinfulness. Remember the Apostle Paul, I am the chief of sinners. It's in discerning the darkness of our sin and never forgetting its darkness that we see the light of the mercy of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we sing with true joy to the Lord. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we praise you for your grace. We stop before you now in prayer in awe that you have saved us. As we come to understand the depths of our sin, we're laboring hard to discern better your grace and the fullness of salvation in Christ. And I pray, Father, that this search together today would accomplish greater worship. That in the doxological orientation of this church, that we would continue to deepen in our understanding of your greatness and goodness to us by deepening in our understanding of our sin and depravity. God, I pray that you would do a unique work in us. And as we turn by your grace in the weeks ahead to consider the glories of salvation in Christ and to consider how it is that we are to attack sin in our daily lives. God, may we just pause here 
and not run from the truth of the humiliation of our sin. God, with all of our heart and soul, we thank you that the story doesn't end there, but that there is grace in our Savior, amazing grace. And we sing, how sweet the sound. For anyone that is separated from that light, I plead, Lord, that you break their hard heart and open their blind eyes to the glories of Christ and to the beauty of sins forgiven. And I ask God that we as a church would put down a stake right here, an Ebenezer, and say, God alone is our God. May this ever be a God-centered church that rejoices to know that we are sinners because it's reality, but rejoices to know through your revelation that Jesus Christ is the Savior and the Lord of heaven and earth. Thank you, I pray, in behalf of those who have received you as Savior, we thank you for this saving grace in Christ. And say how amazing and wonderful it is, not ritualistically, but with truth and with thanksgiving. We pray through the power and work and name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.